Bujun and Dinoy Maganatug. Greetings, relatives. My name is Melissa Nelson, and I'm your host and gardener of the Native Seed Podcast. Welcome to the Native Seed Pod, a podcast aimed at celebrating the diversity and beauty of native seeds, soils, and indigenous foods. Leo Semen Chanyam, hello everyone. Welcome back to the Native Seed Pod Season 2. This episode, we return to the roots of California, our home base here in the beautiful Bay Area, Northern California landscape, where we walk in good circle and good story with Redbird Edward Willie. And you, Melissa, had an amazing afternoon. Tell us a little bit about your time together. It was mid-October during the harvest season of all Northern California Indian tribes, and we wanted to honor and recognize the Coast Miwok and Pomo and North Coast people uh, by taking a walk with Edward Willie into the woods of Marin County. And up in the middle of this oak woodland, we had a beautiful conversation about the role of fire and the role of traditional ecological knowledge and land management with so many stories and wisdom from Redbird about his people and their long-term relationship with that special place. So, Mr. Redbird, please tell us a little bit about your background and what you do. Okay, hello. Uh, yeah, my, my name is Redbird. Uh, that's my new name given to me. <laughs> Uh, I've been, I've worked on a lot of things over the years, but almost everything that I've done is nature-based or environmental, environmentally based. Um, I've, I've taught uh, traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous land management, and um, and then also um, just conventional permaculture, but I like to miss mix in a little bit of indigenous permaculture into that, which is TEK. And then um, more recently, I've been, been involved with uh, programs like Weaving Earth, which is a, a, an immersion a, a organization that offers immersion courses where people commit to a whole year of learning of to be in nature, to be good humans, or having good relationships with the land and with each other. And, um, and then one f- more thing that I'd like to add about what I do is I'm an organizer for the Buckeye Gathering, which is an annual gathering of uh, people to teach and learn ancestral skills. And it's it's a pretty popular event. A lot of people come and a lot of teachers come. And, and for two weeks, we're, we're a village. And so I'm... Always excited when that time time of year comes around. So that's that's mm, all. Excellent. Well, a couple of things that I also want to say, knowing your work and appreciating what you do in the community and the larger Native American community and California Indian community and environmental movement, uh, pioneers, and so many areas is. You know, you're just a wonderful teacher of uh, unity and understanding. 
and your understanding of the earth and the native peoples, uh, but really how to be a good human being, like you said, that really comes through in everything you do. You're also an awesome artist. Uh, I love yeah. your paintings, your regalia, your pottery or your sculptures. Uh, we still always argue about who should have bought your uh, little bear <laughs> and salmon sculpture at the Cultural Conservancy's art show a few years ago. <laughs> I don't remember who got it, but we were all really mad that we didn't get it. Yeah, somebody else got it. I know, because that was just incredible. So you're really a very talented artist and keeping alive a lot of the regalia traditions. So I want to really thank you and honor you and acknowledge you for that. Thank you. Mm-hmm. As an artist, it's your your pieces become like your children, and it's it gets it, it it's hard to let go of it sometimes. Like the the bear, I held on to that for as long as I could. Understandably. <laughs> then eventually, finally had to leave the nest. Oh. <laughs> So, Ed, we're here at this time of autumn equinox, just happened a couple of weeks ago, and it's a beautiful fall day here in Coast Miwok Territory, also known as Marin County. Uh, We're outside the Indian Valley Organic Farm and Garden, where you shared a beautiful teaching, and we did some willow coppicing and land caring practice, and now we're out here in this beautiful oak woodland with some bay trees and um, mainly oak and bay. And mm-hmm. being a person from this north coast land, I'm just curious. I've always liked to re- reimagine or re-envision this land 200 years ago, 300 years ago, before colonization, and how your indigenous ancestors uh, would come here and as so many elders have told me, this was their pharmacy, this was their uh, hospital, this was their uh, grocery store, this was their hardware store. And that if you just look out here and knew how to read the land, you could provide for your family and your village everything you needed. And I just think that's such an important message for today. First, I'd like to say like, I'm here in in this spot. It's a, it's a beautiful spot and everything, uh, and most people that would come here would think that too. That this this was such a beautiful spot, you know, with these oaks, these legacy, uh, long lived grandmother oaks that are here, in the uh, in the pepper woods is what we call the bay trees, mm-hmm. and uh, it is beautiful in in a, in a certain way. It's a, it's beautiful in a. In a primal, rustic kind of way, but when I come up to these spots, I just see everything that needs to be done. It's just been mishandled and, and misused, you know, the environments that we have here. And like, like a lot of uh, Native people that work with uh, TEK, one of the first things that comes to mind is this place needs a burn. You know, when I look out here, that's that's what I see here. Just uh, the fuel load is just really high everywhere, and it's just choked, choked areas. And like what I was saying earlier with the, the group this afternoon is that what we're what we want to achieve in places like this is the park-like setting. We want it to look like a park. You know, we want to do those things that would that would make that happen. And burning is one of them, plus a lot of other things too. Fire is one of the greatest tools for developing diversity, biodiversity here. 
because I don't see those plants now. Like this time of year, we would be coming up here for for certain plants, you know, the medicinal plants or, or the edible plants. And there there is some here, here and there, but not what there should be or not what there could be with with our with those traditional land uh, practices. This place would really be popping with all of that. Like even the oak trees, and you know, we're, we're not taking care of them. We're not coming here and and doing our dances and our songs and and and, and our gratitudes here. And, and the trees know that, you know, they miss us, and, and they're not producing what they could be producing. They are producing a little bit. I haven't checked too much yet today, but. Um, uh, if we came here and did that, these trees would really start uh, producing acorns and producing bayonets. And if we were here re interacting with them in the way that was done in the past. But that's just to answer your question. Mm, no, <laughs> that's a I'd great answer. digress a little bit, but uh, what would we be coming here to look for? Uh, acorns for sure would be one thing this time of year, you know, early October, we start looking at the acorns and uh, following them closely to see when they're ready to um, harvest. And then th this time of year, you know, fall is another, is a time when we'd, we would be going out looking for seeds, so many seeds that we used to use. Um, we don't even know half of them now. You know, most people don't know what they were anymore. Um, but we do know some of them, some of the seeds or some of the bulbs that were collected at this time of year. Um, but all of those things were cultivated and, and, and made to be plentiful, you know, through those practices. And then we would decide where they were, too, where would the ideal place be for that? Like in this valley, you know, what, what would be ideal for this spot? And at, from first glance, it seems like a good uh, acorn spot. I, I don't know what else. And a lot of a, and a lot of times when you have the acorn, there's not much that you can do around it. You, you'd keep that area just for acorns, because then you'd have to burn around it all the time, and you'd keep the pest down, keep the pathogens away. Now there's, all of that is here still. Mm -hmm. You can just see it on the on the trees and everywhere. Well, like you said, when you first look at it, you see these majestic old oaks, grandmother oaks in the, the bays. But when you look at the ground underneath it, you basically see exotic annual grasses and mm -hmm. poison oak. There's not yeah. a lot of plant diversity underneath these oak savannas or oak woodlands that would have generally had, like you said, the the grass seeds and the, the wild onions, you know, the tubers, the roots, the underground uh, food sources. So it, it does actually look neglected if you just pay attention to what's mm -hmm. on the ground, right? Mm -hmm. And in the, the air, too. Mm-hmm. And then also, but not just those, those plants do, also the shrubs and the, the small uh, uh, under canopy trees, you know, they would be producing stuff too, like the hazels and, and, the, and the smaller shrubs mm -hmm. with the manzanitas and the coffee berry. And, and we'd be winding down with the um, berry season, that, that would be late summer and on into this. There still are some berries around probably if, if we looked hard enough.
what I am seeing in, in the from, from this vantage point are acorn woodpeckers. They're busy up there. Mm -hmm. There might be one of their trees there. Yeah. They pick one tree to live in as a community. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you, it's pretty cool to find those trees and to watch them, watch them be uh, woodpeckers do their woodpecker thing, <laughs> <laughs> storing ac acorns. So they like that tree there. Yeah, that actually reminds me a little bit of your beautiful uh, dance, Pomo dance regalia uh, exhibition or exhibit over at the Marin Museum of the American Indian and all of the feathers that your people traditionally use, the Pomo people, for their baskets. Uh, so, you know, how would some of those feathers be harvested or procured too? In, in the old days, this area was uh, um, blessed to have so many birds and, and so many different kinds of birds, just literally millions of birds fl flying around in the sky. And flocks would fly through the air and, and they would lift off the ground and fly over and some of them would take days to fly over, fly, fly past you and they would darken the sky. You know, just one one species of bird doing that. And then there were many, many species like that that were so plentiful and and uh, flourishing across this land. So naturally, us as native Californians had a strong relationship to birds. So, and and that was uh, exhibited by our our dances and our ceremonies. All a lot of our ceremonies um, paid respect to certain birds. Like, like we would have a. Um, the goose dance, or the pelican dance, or the quail dance, or the condor dance, just so many different dances for all, all the different birds. Mm. And then when our dancers, uh -oh. and then when our dancers danced, uh, even today when they dance, they, they make bird movements and, and they have the feathers, you know, all the different feathers. And a big part of their movement is bird movements. So we got them in a lot of different ways. Hunting them was, you know, one way. The different ways that uh, people hunted with uh, with the uh, hunting tools and hunting nets and um, traps and, and even basket traps were made for. We did almost. We used baskets for everything. We had baskets for this and baskets for that. And one of the things we had were baskets that captured birds, particularly uh, the woodpeckers or the flicker birds. We had traps for them. Quail? Quail, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when I see those baskets with the quail top knots and the woodpecker red feathers, they're mm -hmm. extraordinary um, pieces of art and they were functional as well, but many were ceremonial that used a lot of the bird feathers, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like when you're living in the natural world, certain colors are more special than others. Like in our world, we're just inundated with colors, so colors aren't as special to us as they are if you're living uh, in a more earth-based society. So uh, the traditional native people had uh, certain colors that were special. And I always, when I'm telling this people, I always try to get them to guess what are the special colors. 
And a lot of people have a hard time with that because they see all colors all the time. Mm. So what colors would be rare? Which, which colors would stand out? You know, if you if you're out living out in the uh, in, in 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 nature more. I'll tell you what the color is. It's red. Mm -hmm. Red's a really special. Color. Red is a really special color for our, for uh, California Indians. It's it's used in special ways, like in our regalia. You know, those those red feathers that we can get from certain birds, like what we're seeing now. The acorn woodpecker has the red feathers on top of its head, and those are really special feathers, highly prized, and respected. So the red feathers, or any kind of red mm -hmm. feathers, are really highly prized. Uh, among California Indians, and and then they're they're put into regalia, and they're also put onto baskets. And uh, when women put them onto baskets, um, they the Pomos would make these baskets with feathers on them. They're called feather baskets, feather gift baskets, and they're really uh, special uh, baskets. They were only used for you know particular purposes. But when the women were weaving them. They wouldn't eat. They, they, uh, sometimes they, they couldn't weave, or they would only weave them. There were some people that would only weave them on their period. And the women, like, because they couldn't weave normal baskets, so then there were these baskets that they could weave during their period, and they would use those feathers. And another part of that was that they couldn't eat while they were weaving red feathers, because the red feathers were so highly prized. So they would um, not eat for a while, then weave, then weave and weave a bunch of red feathers onto their basket until they were just so hungry they had to eat, and then they would stop. And then they couldn't weave any more red feathers until they had fasted again and done that all over again. So when you go to those museums or whatever and you see those feather gift baskets and you see the red on it, then you know that what what goes into it. I mean, when you just look at it normally, you can see how much goes into it, but then there's just so much more that goes into it beyond that uh, actual fit, <laughs> what you see. Mm, that's powerful. Yes. Yeah. Strong um, medicine in terms of the protocols and the different behaviors associated with those powerful feathers. That's quite a teaching. So we have a pretty good idea, thanks to you painting that picture for us, Ed, of, of the beautiful plants and animals, the birds that would be here in this autumn time of harvest, acorn season, and burning, uh, and tending to all the different uses of the plants here for, like you said, weapons or baskets or medicines or regalia. 
And now we're approaching 2020, it's 2019, it's 50 years since the Indian occupation of Alcatraz, and you're actually a veteran from that. You were there, weren't you, mm-hmm. as part of that? Which is so amazing um, that, you know, not many native California Indian folks talk about it as much as, you know, other the intertribal community that Alcatraz meant so much for. So we're in a time of reflection, looking back, um, 50 years of indigenous resistance, um, looking back two, three hundred years to when your people lived quite abundantly and resiliently here on this land. And now let's think maybe 200 years in the future when you look at this beautiful place here. What would you like to see on this site? I think we have to look to the past and see how they were doing it and then uh, take from that. I mean, it can't, we can't replicate that exactly, but you know, what can we take and what can we use now with what we have now, you know, we have so much more people now and some, so much more of a lot of things that <laughs> good and not good. Hmm. So, you know, how do, how do we mix those two together or how do we uh, get everybody on the same page as our ancestors? I, ideally, I would want people to, I mean, I think we just have to accept that there's a lot of people here that are not native and to California, and they're not going to be going anywhere anytime soon. So, to me, like the best answer is to turn them into Native Californians. So, how do we do that? <laughs> how do we get them to, you know, be a part of this system and take take responsibility for where they are and call it their home and or first call it their home so that they take responsibility for this place and and not pretend like they can just go somewhere else when this place is all used up. They need to stay here and take care of it. Mm. Beautiful. And I know that you've been teaching that really well. I mean, just reframing the conversation about native versus non-native or invasive. I know that you like to even refer to certain plants like scotch broom or eucalyptus <laughs> that many radical restoration ecologists, you know, treat like an enemy and want to go out and demonize these invasive species and the irony of, you know, Euro-Americans <laughs> demonizing <laughs> Euro-American plants. Yeah. There's a little irony there, but you've always had so much compassion and empathy and really saying these are all immigrants mm-hmm. and some were some were kinder than others some were more <laughs> destructive than others but we're all in this together today and what do you think are some ways that we can continue to harmonize and uh, build community with that kind of diversity and even the history of you know destruction that also happened with these invasions and I'm, I'm deliberately using the word invasion just for provoca- provocateur's <laughs> sake. We could take a page from uh, Native California. There's one, one thing we can do. And, and in, in Native California, there were so many different people living here, so many different cultures and so many languages and just just a lot was happening here because of diversity and just because of things, the way things happened, how, how there was so much um, uh, 
immigration here. Immigration's been happening to California long before Europeans started coming. For some reason, everybody's been coming to California, and there's just <laughs> so much, so many in, even indigenous people that are from other places that have ended up in California. They can tell this by language. They can trace all the different languages back to all around North America. So it's been happening for a long time, but um, before the Europeans came, they were able to uh, get along for the most part. There were no big wars or, or no major disagreements. And what, what I've been able to distill from that is that um, at that time, there was more of a celebration for diversity, which we don't have today. I mean, it's mm -hmm. here, here and there, but for the most part, we don't celebrate diversity. And the whole immigrant plant thing just uh, <laughs> uh, highlights that. You know, we don't celebrate new plants that come here. Uh, and it's not because, I mean, they're not coming in, in here and destroying the environment, even though some people say that and they do have an effect. But there were plants here before the Europeans came that were vigorous and would take over if you didn't take care of it, if you didn't take care of the ecosystem. We had those plants already, and then now we just have a few new ones that are doing that too. But if we're taking care of everything and celebrating diversity and not be so hung up on uh, um, eliminating things, you know, completely, uh, it's kind of a, like a genocidal type mindset that we have with our plants. We just want to, you know, wipe them out completely. Mm -hmm. So that's not. That's not very good. Um, we just have to celebrate them. And another thing, that, another new idea that I have about these plants that are so vital and so strong, they're, they're good plants. Like a lot of the plants we try to get rid of, like dandelion, they're good plants. You know, they're full of medicine and they're strong and full of nutrients. And so many of the plants that are um, demonized are like that, you know, plantain. That's, mm -hmm. So we have, you know, these these companies like Monsanto that brainwash into thinking us into thinking that these are bad plants and we gotta poison them and everything. But uh, my thought is that these plants have a lot of vitality and they're good. And they're good and we need to take advantage of them, especially in these times where we have climate change and plants are disappearing and you know the delicate plants are disappearing and delicate parts of the ecosystem are disappearing. It might come to the time where, you know, all the plants are gone, but plantain and dandelion are still going to be here. <laughs> so we got to uh, be nice to them. Mm -hmm. They might be keeping us alive mm -hmm. someday. <laughs> That's right. And there's a lot of plants like that that are strong and vital. And yet demonized as weeds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's such a good point, such a critical point that a lot of those quote weeds that Monsanto and other agribusiness companies um, try to fight against for their herbicides are actually profound medicine plants. Mm -hmm. it, so it's, again, kind of ironic. In the sake of productivity or efficiency, we're destroying a lot of our resilient relatives as those kind of weedy plants that ha contain a lot of medicine. So look to them as our teachers, yeah? And herbalists will say that plants appear where they're needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that uh, that's why we're getting all of these strong, vital plants <laughs> popping up everywhere because they're needed everywhere. Mm.
I also think about a little bit the role of fire here. You, you've mentioned a couple times that this place would be more biodiverse and more useful to humans if fire had been used here. When would this place, when would be an appropriate time to burn this place? Uh, in the spring, in the fall, in the winter, after the mm -hmm. first rains, it'll come in a month or so? It depends. Mm -hmm. You know, it depends on what, what we're burning for. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're burning for basket plants or for edible plants or medicinal plants or, like, each plant has its own uh, burn, burn regimen, yeah. Mm -hmm. So... It really depends on what the purpose of the burn is mm -hmm. to affect a certain um, plant. Or even one plant could have several different ones. Mm -hmm. You could be doing one thing to it over here and one thing to that same plant over here, or a different thing to the same plant for different uh, outcomes in each plant for that same plant. That's right. Um, no, that's really important distinction. But we've... we've uh, painted ourselves into a corner here where it's just so hard to do that now. Like here where we're standing, we can't have a burn here because the fuel load has built up so high it would be a catastrophic fire if we tried to have a burn mm -hmm. in here. It um, would be better just to do some clearing first, yeah, right? Yeah, just mechanical mm -hmm. thinning, Yeah. Just which, which, would be, which would be such a lot of work right now, especially if we thought about you know, the next hillside over and the next hillside over, there's just so much of, so much work to be done here and everywhere in California. And yet people need good work to do. <laughs> the Green New Deal yeah. <laughs> is yeah. about, you know, the Green Corps uh, is an idea that's come and gone, the Conservation Corps, putting people to work, helping heal the earth mm -hmm. and clear these things up. It's hard work. It's a lot of labor, as we saw today, even doing an hour mm -hmm. of willow trimming. So this would be tremendous be work. Like the WPA. Huh? Yes. Bring, the, bring mm -hmm. that back and make everybody do all that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Redbird, for all of your wisdom and teachings. Um, really great day with you today. Is there anything else you'd like to share about traditional ecological knowledge uh, with our listeners of the Native Seed Pod and some of the seeds that we worked with today? Um, any reflections that you'd like to share? Mm, if anybody's at all interested in learning more about that or practicing those type of things, I would suggest learning more first. It's a, there's a lot to learn and you can't just go out and start a fire somewhere and, <laughs> no. and do anything. There's a lot goes into it, a lot of knowledge and wisdom that goes into it and, uh, uh, and uh, collaboration. But that goes for any part of uh, traditional ecological knowledge. You know, you, there's a lot to learn and you just got to get out there and learn a little bit at a time and learn from there's people out there, a lot of Native people that are uh, teaching that, and other people too. People who are, who are living close to the land know a lot of that stuff mm -hmm. too. Um, so when I think of the future of this place too, I would love mm. to see flowing water. Um, it would be a dream to have more flowing water in our creeks and watersheds in this area. Fire helps with that. Fire burns back all of the uh, uh, resource-hungry plants that come through and drink up all the water and grow real fast and tall. And fire uh, balances those out so that there's more water 
in the ground. Mm -hmm. More water in the streams. It's one of the many things that fire does. Mm. Well, thank you, Redbird, for your um, sharing so much with us today. And great to be here with you. Thank you. Thanks for talking with me. Mm -hmm. May we continue. Definitely. Yeah, right. A glitch. The Native Seed Pod is produced by the Cultural Conservancy with generous support by Tamil Pius Trust. To contribute to our polyculture and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org or nativeland.org. thank Canyon Sayers Roods for that beautiful song. She sang both of those beautiful songs in California Indian languages, Salonian Shumash. Her name is also Coyote Woman, and I acknowledge and thank you, Coyote Woman, for those beautiful, beautiful California Indian songs. I also want to acknowledge our production team, Mateo Inojosa, who was the field recordist uh, that hot afternoon with Redbird up in the hills of Marin County, and also our in-studio recording artist and sound designer, Colin Farish on post-production, and Teo Montoya and Sarah Moncada. Thank you, everybody, for your great work on this episode. Chimi Gwich. <laughs>